Jesus, you are so good. You are so, so good. Help us never, Lord, to lose sight of how good you are. Set our eyes on the cross, on your love, on the power of your love. And may we be transformed by it, even today, Jesus, as we come to your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we continue our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a word of clarity and encouragement for the church in hard times. And it has been for centuries and centuries. So a word of encouragement, that's just what we need, right? That's just what we need today. But scripture is a lot more honest than many of the things that we're used to living, uh, listening to. Uh, so it may not sound that encouraging to us at first. There's so many people and so many products that promise to make our lives better by making them easier. Well, the basic message of Hebrews as a whole is that Jesus is the best, He's better than Moses, better than sacrifice, better than angels, better than anything. So you should follow him, but following him is hard. Like it can be really hard, but don't give up. Instead of telling us that all of our problems will go away if we follow Jesus, Hebrews has just told us in these last couple of weeks as we read chapter 11 that many of Jesus' most devoted followers uh, have ended up destitute, imprisoned, and, and killed, murdered. And in light of that, we ask the question, how do we keep following Jesus if it's that hard? How, how can we do that? What does that look like? And so chapter 12 comes with a word of encouragement and explanation to help us know how to press on when things are hard, when things are confusing. When things get hard, what you need to know, what chapter 12 wants to tell us is, this word of encouragement is that in the hard things, God is disciplining us. Don't give up because in the hard things, God is disciplining you. Who feels encouraged? (laughs) That doesn't sound encouraging at all, does it? Uh, It sounds like more bad news. Uh, It might even make us question God's goodness a little bit when we read that or when we hear that. So this is the place where we need to dig deeper, where we need to press further into God's word to see what's going on. We have two tasks today. The first one is to understand this. What does it mean? How could it be true that um, it's good news that God is at work in the hard things, that that is his discipline and that's good? How can that be true? Understanding it. That's our first job. But then as we come to understand it, we'll understand it more fully as we move to the second part, and that is understanding, beginning to think about how does this get real in our lives? What do we do with it? How do we live this way? So that's our work today. Uh, So... I've said discipline, the word discipline, like 50 times already. (laughs) And every time I have, I bet something comes up inside of you. There's some feeling, some picture in your mind. Um, For me, when I think of the word discipline, I think about getting in trouble. Uh, The word discipline makes me think about the shame and the sense of failure that comes uh, with getting in trouble. I don't like to get in trouble. I know everyone doesn't feel that way. It may surprise you since I have this job that I don't like to get in trouble. But I like to do things the right way. And when I can't, it's hard. I don't like that feeling. Uh, The word discipline makes me think about the pain and consequences of failure. It makes me, it conjures up pictures of beatings and imprisonment. Um, Discipline makes us think about punishment. And we are likely to think of the many broken ways that we have seen punishment meted out. We've all seen 
many of, many of us have experienced firsthand, and some of us have even been responsible for, discipline that was selfish, more about the pride and anger of the person doing the disciplining than the good of the person the discipline was for. We've all seen punishment that was random, manipulative, unjust, and even sometimes downright sadistic for the pleasure of the one executing it. Here in Hebrews 12, discipline is set in the very specific context of a parent-child relationship. And this picture, this relationship, is at the root of how we're meant to understand discipline as good news. But of course, this is going to be particularly hard to receive for anyone who's lived through an unhealthy expression of discipline with parents, what we might call or something, anything like abuse. And I think Scripture recognizes that. In verse 10, it points to the gap that exists between human discipline, even at its best, and God's discipline. So to understand the discipline that Hebrews 12 is talking about is good news. We first really have to understand who it's coming from. It's coming from the same Father who has been revealed to us fully and perfectly in Jesus Christ. The same Jesus that died so that we can live. The same Jesus that humbled himself, though he didn't have to, so that we could be raised up. The same Jesus that has all power and authority, but who's to, who chose to save the world with suffering love. So when we read this chapter, and when we read all of Scripture, we read it with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And of course, the beginning of the chapter literally tells us to do that. <laughs> because as we look to Jesus, as we look to the cross, we were reminded that the story of Jesus' crucifixion is the ultimate example of punishment that is unjust, selfish, and sadistic. If anyone knows the dark side of discipline, it's our Lord. Because of his sacrifice, because of the way that he has proven his completely selfless love for us to the uttermost, even at our worst, we can trust that the discipline that comes from our Lord is never selfish, it's never random, it's never unjust, it's never sadistic. And with that truth firmly in our minds, we can turn more fully to this picture of parental discipline at its best that Hebrews 12 points us towards. Now, sometimes good parental discipline is punishment. I mean, that's, that's part of it. But that's not mostly what it is. Most discipline is training. Most discipline is not punishment. Most discipline is training. It's mostly setting and holding boundaries, pushing our kids to do something that they would rather not do because the long-term good outweighs the short-term hardship, or stopping them from doing things uh, for the same reason, right? Because of the long, for the long-term good, even though it maybe isn't what they want. So a couple weeks ago, our family had COVID. Uh, if you guys don't know me very well, I have five kids. One of them is brand new, two months old. Uh, and so, you know, I took the, the four big boys. They're homeschooling while feeling terrible. We're doing all that. And then Beth and the baby go over here trying not to get sick. And I thought, I don't know how many times I thought... Uh, in that week, and of course it's life in general, but this was an extreme example of it, that all I do all day long is try to get people to do things they don't want to do. <laughs> you know? I'm just like moving from guy to guy like, okay, get out of bed. You don't want to get out of bed. Well, I need you to get out of bed. Get dressed. You don't want to, okay, well, get dressed. Well, eat this food. Well, not that food. That food's terrible. Eat this food that will actually give you some nutritional value. Go to school. Okay, let's, let's do the work. Let's, you know, and it's just, it's just one thing after another, you know. You know, get off your brother. You know, don't run with the knife. Like, don't, don't throw the knife. You know, don't, don't color your brother. You know, I just like, it's, it's endless. It's literally like my whole life. But this is the work of a parent, and, and it's what love looks like. 
And so, but as I thought about this in this picture with my kids, and as I, as I looked at this passage of Scripture and wrestled with it, the picture that I feel like the Lord put in front of me very viscerally uh, was not even the picture so much of my older kids, but it's of Isaiah, our two-month-old. Uh, this kid, he's too young to make any conscious choices. There's nothing that needs redirecting, really. But there's still parental discipline in his life. And so what I want to show him to you, in a sense today, is a picture for you to hold on to of what the Lord's discipline is like, of what his love is like. You see, Isaiah does not want to lay on his tummy. Uh, but we put him on his tummy pretty regularly, not because we're mean, uh, but because when he fights laying on his stomach, he builds the nus- muscles he needs to lift his head and his body, the muscles he needs to push with his arms, the muscles that he would rather not use in these ways, believe me, but that he will need to crawl and to go from crawling to walking and running and doing everything. And so today, though he would never choose it, Isaiah needs a little bit of tummy time. This is most, this is what most of God's discipline for us looks like. Setting boundaries, pushing us to do some hard things that we would rather not do because the long-term good outweighs the short-term hardship. Now, having said that, with that picture of the baby in your mind, there's an important caveat that I must make. And that is, to say that God disciplines his children is not to say that every bad thing that happens in our lives is some kind of punishment from God. Uh, Jesus' followers, and many of the Jews of his day, and the pagans for that matter, I believe that's exactly how things worked. If bad stuff happened to you, it was punishment from God. But Jesus and Scripture in general are explicit in saying that's not the case. There are lots of examples. I'll just point to a couple. Uh, In Luke 13, Jesus is having a conversation with his followers, and he's talking about uh, these Jews who were killed by the Romans. And then he goes on to talk about this specific disaster, this random event, apparently, where a tower collapsed called the Tower of Siloam and killed a whole bunch of people. And they're wondering, whose fault was this? Like, who was God punishing? He's saying, that's not what's going on here. Uh, Then later in John 9, they meet a man born blind. And so it raises the question for them, who's being punished here? Is the man being punished, or was it his parents' sin that caused this to happen? His response is, this is not punishment. It's not what's going on. Or even from the pagan perspective, in Acts 28, we see Paul survive a shipwreck, only to get out of the water and immediately be bitten by a venomous snake. And everybody says, oh man, you must be a murderer or something for this to happen to you. God's punishment finally caught up with you. But scripture again is saying that's not what's going on. So again and again when bad things happen, we ask, who is God punishing? But scripture and Jesus tell us that's not what's going on. This isn't punishment, but it is an opportunity to turn to God, to call on him and to look to him, an opportunity to grow. Say it again as clearly as I can. For children of God, hardship, when we encounter it and turn to him, it is an opportunity to trust Jesus in in real ways and to grow as a result. God is at work in this, in this way. Because discipline, rightly understood, is always for something. It's always pointed to something, unto something. It's not arbitrary or random. That's part of what would make it abusive. When I send my kids to school... When they get back and it's like, hey, let's do fractions. It's not because I want to do fractions at the end of my work day, right? It's because I want them to grow and to be able to live in the fullness of maturity as they grow. Well, what does the Lord's discipline aim at? What's its purpose? Hebrews 12 tells us clearly. 
It's for our good. It is for our good. And even more specifically than that, that we might share in his holiness. It is, it is, it is so that we might share in his holiness. And that will produce a peaceful harvest of right living. You know, this taps into this huge theme that runs all the way through Scripture that's really beautiful. The truth is, our Lord wants us to be like him. He made us in the beginning in his image, and we are destined to be with him in eternity. That's like the beginning and the end of the story, to rule and reign with him. And in the middle, what we see is that in the incarnation, God became man. God, he joined his immortality to our mortality making us flesh and blood the very children of God. Though unworthy, now we share in the eternal love and light and beauty of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And this reunion with God, this great salvation, it's not merely a clearing of all charges, though it is that. It's not only a change in our official status in the heavenly record books, though it is that. No, we have been made the body of Christ, the earthly home of the Holy Spirit, the place where God's own radiant life is breaking into creation. This is all God's doing. It's not something that we can take or create on our own. But because God has made it possible, this relationship with the living God, this following Jesus and becoming like him, is what our lives are for. And so it is what God's discipline is for. It is what it is aimed at. It is what it is unto. It's like us putting our child on his belly so he can build those muscles to grow into maturity. So a summary statement here. How do we understand God's discipline in the hard things as good news? We understand it as good news, not because every hard thing is good, but because God uses the hard things when we will turn to him to make us mature. And being mature means being like him. And what could be better than that? I'm going to say it again. Discipline is good news, not because every hard thing is good, but because God uses the hard things when we turn to him to make us mature. And being mature means being like him. And that's the best. So what does this look like? How does this get practical? How does it get real? How do we say yes to this? There are two main ways that I'm going to point to. It changes the way that we handle hardship that comes to us, the stuff we don't choose, the things in our lives that hit us. It changes the way that we, that we respond to that. That's the first way. And the second thing is that it actually challenges us to do some hard things on purpose, to choose some hard things. But we'll start with the first. How does believing that God's at work in the hard things change the way that we handle hardship? So the truth is, friends, there are things in all of our lives, right? There are people, there are situations that, that we feel, we believe, that if we could just have this one thing removed, if we could just wish it away, if it was gone tomorrow, then our lives would finally be good. Then everything would be okay. Then we could get on with the life that we really want. We believe that this person or situation or whatever it is, is the thing that's in our way. It's the obstacle to us having the life that we're meant to have. Now, I'm not saying that whatever that is for you, whatever comes to mind when I said that, I'm not saying it's not a bad thing. It may be, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I am saying it is probably also the place in your life where Jesus is waiting to meet you. It is probably the place where you actually need to lean on him to find out that he is Savior, not just in some hypothetical academic sense, but in precisely your place of need. 
It's the place where there's a chance to trust him with something real, to find that he is faithful, and as a result, to grow. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was a kid, I had nightmares all the time, like really terrible nightmares. Went on for years. And so I, I, I just dreaded nighttime. I dreaded the dark, the whole thing. It was just heavy on me always. Uh, but over time, I started to pray myself to sleep every night, really in desperation. That did not take my fear away. It did make it manageable. Now, I cannot call those night terrors good. They were really dark. But they were the place, I can honestly tell you, they were the place where I first learned in a really visceral way that Jesus is my help. That he is the one, the only one, who can meet me in my deepest places of need. Places nobody else can reach. Those nightmares were the place where I encountered him as Savior in like a real, non-academic way. And learned to depend on him. And that's been a, you know, a factor in my life ever since. So the question that I want to ask you is, where is the pain in your life right now? What is the thing that you feel like is in your way that if you could just wish it away tomorrow that you would? Friends, it is okay to want God to take that thing away. It's okay to do that. It's not wrong. And maybe he will, and I pray with you, in fact, that he will. But as we pray for that, look again to that baby on its belly, whining and fighting against the gravity, uh, the power of gravity a couple minutes at a time. And we see that if all the conflicts in our, in our, in our lives were removed like magic in a moment... We simply would not grow. We would never learn to see the broken places in our own hearts, the places of darkness that need to be restored in us. We would never grow beyond them. And we would never learn that God is someone that we can trust. We would never learn to depend on him. We would never reach out. So what I'm saying, friends, is by all means, like Paul, pray to God that he will take the thorn away. Like Jesus in Gethsemane, pray, Lord, Father, take this cup. But... Not my will, but thine be done. And having prayed thus, in that hard place, while it's there, lean into Jesus. Seek him as Savior, again, not just on the other side of this life, not just in heaven, but here and now in the real hard stuff. He is there waiting. You will find him. And as he meets you there, will find, as you trust him, that you are growing. You are building spiritual muscles. You're becoming more like him. So again, it's kind of a summary statement. is that the practical impact of understanding the hard things in our lives is discipline from a loving God. It's not that we bless the darkness, but that we learn to turn to Jesus and grow in the hard places. Instead of coping a thousand other ways or running away. But there is another part. So we've talked about what we do when the hard things come, the things that we don't ask for. Uh, but then there's this other piece. And really the whole second half of this section of scripture talks about it. Starting in verse 12, it indents there a little bit. You get a new idea. And it says, uh, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Uh, in this section, it's, it's talking about uh, the, hard, the challenges that we would take on on purpose, uh, things that we would probably rather not do, uh, but that we do on purpose to grow and mature. It's talking about spiritual discipline. So since the Reformation, uh, we Protestants have been saying 
You are saved by grace through faith. And that's exactly right. That is the truth. That is the gospel. But out of a fear of, of sponsoring a salvation that's by works, we have largely shied away from any kind of spiritual effort. It's as if we get saved and then we're just supposed to wait for the Lord to take us. But that's not what Scripture calls us to. The whole New Testament, and Hebrews in particular, makes the same move over and over. It points to God's great love, to Christ's sacrifice, and to the salvation that he has accomplished for us, making us his own children. But because of that, it calls us to live in light of that good news, to run the race hard, not to earn anything, but in thanksgiving, to align our lives with the good things Jesus has already done for us, to be changed by them. And so I think this parental discipline picture actually helps us to understand the relationship between faith and work so much more clearly. See, my love for my kids isn't contingent on their following my rules. I don't love them because they do what I say. I discipline them precisely because I love them. I would much rather not spend my whole day asking people to do things they don't want to do. But I do it because I love them. And to the extent that they're able to receive that, they grow and mature and become fruitful people. With the caveat again that I'm not perfect and it doesn't always. But with God, that's not the case. God's discipline has the same root. It has the same function. It has the same end. He means to bring healing and wholeness into our lives here and now, not just in eternity. Not that we'd be perfected on this side of eternity, but because of his love, he means for us to become like him, and it starts now, and it begins as we deal with these hard things. And so he calls us into a life of spiritual discipline. Uh, into doing the, ho- the spiritual homework and eating the spiritual veg- vegetables and going on the spiritual run that is reading scripture and prayer and asking for forgiveness and, and, and confessing our sins and serving others. So there's an, an invitation here both to look to Christ in the hard things that come and by willingly taking on discipline. But today... We've got to be even more specific. The question that I think I really have to ask you is, what makes you want to quit? What makes you want to quit? Because this this word of encouragement isn't just a general word of encouragement to people who are going through hard times. It's specifically to a church in an era of persecution. That's who it's written to. And it's saying, don't quit. Following Jesus is hard. Don't give up on following Jesus. So the question is, What makes you want to quit following Jesus? Maybe not completely, maybe not 100%, maybe not take your name off the Christian, you know, role or whatever, but what makes you want to step back? What makes you want to fall back? What has done that work in your life to this point? Many people are leaving the church, right? I mean, that's that's a big part of what's going on. So what makes you want to quit? What is it? Into that space... This word speaks, and it's saying whatever that thing is, whatever that hard thing is, whether it's busyness or the cares of the world, distraction, and a million other things that demand your attention, whether it's the brokenness of the church that you've just seen too much of, whatever that thing is, it is not a sign to you that God is not with you. It does not mean that everything has gone off the rails. You do not have to call that hard thing good, but it is probably the place right now where Jesus is looking to meet you, to meet you as Savior, if you'll trust him with it. 
So two invitations. One, ask the question, how is Jesus inviting you to trust him with the hard things now? In that place you want to give up. Concretely, it's not rhetorical. I don't want you to talk back right now. It's going to be a lot of different voices. But I want you to answer it in your own mind and heart. What would it look like? Have there been times in your life where you trusted God in hard places and grew and matured through it? Can you remember a time like that? What was it like? Remembering that, what would it be like now? What would it be like to trust God in that hard place with whatever it is that's in the way? Maybe keep praying for him to take it away. But as you're in it, what does trusting him with it look like? And how might that lead to to growth? That's the first invitation. The second one is for the second half of the chapter. What might taking on some intentional spiritual disciplines be like for you? How might God, loving father that he is, be nudging you like I do my two-month-old? By putting him on his belly. Are there spiritual muscles that you would rather not use that need to grow? Are there spiritual muscles that you would rather not use that need to grow? It's hard to use them when they're underdeveloped. But as they get stronger, it becomes a joy. And this kind of exercise, the spiritual discipline, is actually a lot of what helps us deal with the hard things that come for unbidden. You know, the things that we're not looking for, that we don't ask for. So friends, what I want to say to you today is simply, your father loves you. He wants you to grow, and he wants you to grow up to be like him. And that's really good news. So as you come to the table in a minute, as we come to the altar... Come offering him the hard thing, whatever it is. Bring it to him, lay it down at his feet, lay it at the cross, and ask him to show you what trusting him with that will look like as he transforms you more and more into the image of his son. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we cannot do this on our own. So we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of your word would work in us. Give us the courage, the wisdom, and the grace to receive your discipline with joy and to become more like you. Make us strong and mature, Lord Jesus, by your grace. Amen. Please stand for the Apostles' Creed.